from Yahoo Finance, this is Illegal Tender Season 2. I'm Katie Krasik. In our last episode, we got to know Anna Delvey about as well as you could get to know her. After grifting her way through New York City in the mid-2010s, we find ourselves at a turning point in her story. A chaotic trip to Morocco, where the cost of being friends with Anna reaches its peak. Perhaps the best way to understand how much of a mess this Marrakesh trip was is to hear it from Rachel herself. Should I start with the the fact that I had to purchase the tickets? Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know what? I think being a photo producer and dealing with logistics and putting um, things like travel and studios and cars and God knows what else uh, for work on my credit cards and waiting to be reimbursed, I was oddly more vulnerable, I think, to this particular con um, because there are some red flags I think other people might have balked at that I could rationalize or, or see as is normal because, you know, I booked. So sorry to preface this. The day we were supposed to leave for our trip, the tickets weren't booked. And and I was sort of thrown into or jumped in to, to help with that. Um, but, you know, having booked travel for busy professional people who have moving schedules and whatever else, I was used to that and, and plans changing. So it didn't strike me as that bizarre, given that Anna, you know, she said she didn't know what time she's going to get get out of meetings. And. She was like hung up in meetings and she didn't care about how much the flights cost. So I guess that's why you kind of book early, right? And to ensure you get a seat and there was plenty of availability on the flight. I, I can I can explain why I thought this. Clearly it was a mistake. But um, so the morning of the of the trip, the flights hadn't been booked. She asked for my help finalizing the booking. I asked her with what credit card. She sent me a credit card that, of course, didn't go through. And then I ended up having to put the, the flights for four travelers on my card. Um, I mean, I, I offered and, and she said, as long as it's okay for you, I'll wire you on Monday. So that's how it started. And then we get to... Rachel put the cost of the plane tickets, about $4,000, on her credit card. It was the first of a number of concessions she would make to Anna when pressed to help tie up the loose financial ends of the trip. And then we get to Marrakesh and everything seems fine at first. It's me, a videographer, and a, the personal trainer came as well. Um, we get to the hotel. We're there. Everything seems to be fine. We take a tour. It's the most ridiculously opulent hotel I've ever been to. It, you know, there's the big main building with like four restaurants and three bars. And then you walk through the sprawling gardens and we have a private villa that has a butler and a little pool. And it, I mean, it was a lot. It was a lot of a lot of a lot. And everything seems okay until the first time we leave to go to the marketplace and Anna wants to buy some caftans, some some dresses, and she goes to pay. She's picked out $1,300 worth of clothing and her card doesn't go through. And I think it's because she hasn't told her bank she's traveling, which, again, here I am making excuses for her before she even has to. Um, And since she already owed me money, it was sort of like a snowball effect where it was one more thing on top of that. And then the meals outside of the hotel when her cards continued to not work. Um, and, and that stuff added up. I, I now, having read books about how con confidence games can work, it's I think that is a technique where you start small and you sort of build on to that. It's kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. But the way that the hotel situation unfolded 
was different. It was, um, I now think it was, you know, she created the sense of or the situation that, that involved a lot of urgency. And I think when you're in a stressful situation, you don't always think rationally, but I, I couldn't see another way out of the situation. So it was my last full day in Marrakesh. I woke up, the trainer was sick, needed to go home, was asking for my help booking a flight. Um, I had kind of fallen into the role of involuntary producer, you know, booking everyone's travel and figuring out what the plans were for every day and running around, just like putting out fires because it's my nature and my job and God, I don't know. Um, yeah, so I, it was the perfect storm. The The videographer had woken up and left to film Anna who had signed up for private tennis lessons every morning and then of course half the time or less showed up. The rest of the time just didn't tell anybody and left this guy standing there waiting for her. So the videographer was out sort of waiting for her, realized she wasn't coming and then was like, waiting by the breakfast buffet where I was going to meet him before we started our day. So he's out of the villa. The trainer is sick, needs to get to the airport. I'm calling the concierge for an urgent car because there's a flight at like 12.15 or something, but she needs to leave immediately to make it. So that, I think, is what that alar- that set off alarm bells because I think the hotel thought we were fleeing and the, the payment, like the, the credit card Anna had given them before we arrived, didn't work. Which I didn't know until, you know, I, it was a little too late. Um, so these two managers appear instead of the car for the trainer. I have to go wake up Anna to deal with the managers. I'm trying to get the trainer out into a car. She leaves. I go to my bedroom thinking, you know, Anna's out there dealing with the managers. It's going to be fine. Her bank should be open. This can be resolved. She just needs to, like, focus on this being a serious problem. I come out from the room to go meet the trainer or the, the videographer for breakfast, and Anna's just sitting there, and the two men are just standing there. And Anna's phone is on the table. She's not doing anything. She's not using it. Um... It just was this unbearable standoff. And, and the men turned to me and said, do you have a card? It's for the temporary hold that's required to, you know, we're required to have before you check in. And she'll have to settle the final bill before she checks out. And Anna's like, can we just use your card for now? So I just buckled under the pressure. I didn't see a way out. And I thought it was temporary. I think I, you know, I made myself think it was going to be okay because I didn't know what else to do. Her detachment was really alarming that she was just sitting there and didn't seem to to understand the, the urgency and the seriousness of the situation. You know, these men weren't they weren't friendly. They weren't smiling. They weren't like making jokes. They were there to collect what they needed, and they were very stern. What was the total amount? By the t- I can't remember the exact dollar amount of the hotel, but by the, t- by the time I left Marrakesh, Anna owed me $62,000, which was more than I made in a year. The rise of scamming in the social media age was inevitable. As platforms encourage users to share what they're doing for nearly every waking moment, so too do they invite the opportunity for pushing idealized and often falsified versions of people's everyday lives. The idea that your persona on social media is always, on some level, fake, is so normalized that influencers now take to their platforms to dispel the perception that their lives are perfect, sharing their personal mental health struggles or giving a behind-the-scenes look at how exhausting it really is to be a new mom. But not everyone wants to pull back that facade. And the past three years have shown a precipitous rise in the idea that you can accomplish anything as long as you have a shiny Instagram grid and a couple hundred thousand followers. Google Trends shows a spike in searches for the word scam in early May 2017. It was around this time that thousands of would-be festival goers found themselves trapped on an island in the Bahamas without proper lodging, facilities, or food. 
and no guarantee that they would get back to the States. The Fire Festival was billed as a luxury destination music experience with beachside parties, fancy bungalows, and food from celebrity chefs. But instead, this is what... The Fire Festival promised ticket buyers the experience of a lifetime. They would spend a weekend at a music festival featuring top-tier talent on an island that had supposedly been owned by Pablo Escobar in what the festival's promoters were calling luxury villas with gourmet food. Acts on the lineup included Blink-182, Migos, Pusha T, Disclosure, and more than 30 others. The festival enlisted a slate of influencers to do guerrilla-style marketing. Kendall Jenner, Bella Hadid, Emily Ratajkowski. They were among those who were paid to promote the event on social media. In Jenner's case, her compensation clocked in around $250,000. The influencer marketing campaign was released on December 12, 2016. And in 24 hours, posts that used the hashtag FireFest received 300 million impressions. From a marketing standpoint, FireFest was wildly successful. Thousands of tickets were sold some of which had a price tag of $12,000. But with less than a year to plan the festival, the event itself was set up to fail. Upon arrival on April 27, 2017, attendees were brought to a beach party with no signs that a large-scale music festival was set to take place that weekend. Instead, they were corralled into an area that many likened to a disaster relief site. The only lodging were UNICEF-style tents with rain-soaked mattresses that the festival goers had to fight each other to claim. In order to unravel the motives and reasons people would get invested in something like this, we asked a professional. My name is Emily Belchettis. I'm an associate professor of psychology at New York University. So there will never be one simple answer for why do these crazy stories come to be and why are we fascinated by them. So it's really multifaceted. And one one idea that came to my mind, uh, again, is a fundamental motivation that we might call finding that optimal balance. We have two competing drives, one to feel like we're connected, but also another to feel that we're unique. And those are in conflict with one another. And so from any point in our life or from any situation to the next, we might be striving to find that balance between both being connected to others socially, but also finding our own unique place in life. And so when we see what might seem like a, a totally out there, crazy new opportunity like the Firefest, uh, that might be appealing to some people who might feel like they're striving for something that's unique. But they're striving for the same thing that's unique, just like everyone else who's striving to be a part of that same social scene, right? And so what's interesting about that particular opportunity to, to be a part um, of the Firefest would be that, that it might be actually tapping into or finding a way to resolve this incompatibility between finding something that is unique but also being part of a, of a social circle. And, and when we see opportunities like that, um, it might be sort of like killing two birds with one stone. So what's interesting is that people want to be a part of this really exclusive thing, but they wouldn't want to do it if they were the only one showing up on the island, right? So that's the unique thing about this is that, is that there is something that seems special and different. Um, and, and, the on, and the appeal is that you're going to be doing it with some of your closest friends and maybe others that are like as into this as you are. But nobody wants to do that kind of thing alone. Eventually... The attendees made it back to the U.S. That's when the lawsuits began. The festival's founder, 
millennial wannabe entrepreneur Billy McFarland, and rapper Ja Rule, who had helped to organize FIRE, faced charges of defrauding ticket buyers. One suit sought $100 million in damages. When McFarland was out on bail, he retargeted individuals who had purchased FIRE tickets, promising access to exclusive events through a company called NYC VIP Access. But the company pushing the tickets was a fraud, and even some of the events it was promoting were fake. In her book, Trick Mirror, the writer Gia Tolentino sums up Firefest and its aftermath. She writes, When I read that detail, she's talking about the NYC VIP access scheme. I thought about how, in the midst of the real-time social media frenzy, Ja Rule had tweeted that Firefest was not a scam. The phrase functioned like a ribbon-cutting ceremony. It announced McFarlane, whom the New York Times described as Gatsby run through an Instagram filter, as the scammer of his generation, and Firefest as not just a scam, but the definitive one, America's first major all-millennial scam event. Tolentino continues, Firefest sailed down Scam Mountain with all the accumulating force and velocity of a cultural shift that had over the previous decade, subtly but permanently changed the character of the nation, making scamming, the abuse of trust for profit, seem simply like the way things were going to be. All of that's to say, the grift is having a moment. Merriam-Webster defines a grifter as a pickpocket, a crooked gambler, or a confidence man. Any criminal who relied on a skill and wits rather than physical violence. Grifters are looking for financial benefit. Some kind of gain through winning someone's trust and pulling the wool over their eyes while jewelry goes missing, or a wallet gets snatched, or their bank account gets drained. Charles Ponzi was so famous for running get-rich-quick schemes, they literally named the practice after him. Frank Abagnale Jr., was notoriously hard to catch during his run of check forging, among other scams in the 1960s. Bernie Madoff once again brought the grift into the limelight in the early 2000s, running the largest Ponzi scheme the world had ever seen, and the largest financial fraud in U.S. history. Here's where Anna Delvey fits in. She was a socialite. She was an heiress. She was a philanthropist. She was also 100% made up. Delvey operated under the guise of building a lifestyle and a brand, one that involved flashy charity work and one that maintained a certain level of exclusivity. Her scamming was found out only a few months after fire and much like Billy McFarlane's idyllic but unrealized music festival, Anna was selling a version of herself that never actually existed in the first place. Marrakesh was the beginning of the end for Anna Delvey. But Rachel was also dealing with the aftermath of a trip gone wrong, including the approximately $62,000 that Anna owed her for covering the flights and hotel charges. As as that that summer after Marrakesh unfolded, it was over the course of, I think, two, a little over two months that I had tried so hard to be reimbursed by Anna. It's not like she just disappeared. She kept stringing me along every day. It was... 
by far the hardest period of my life I've ever been through. Just it felt like like a, a, abuse. I mean, not to, to diminish anybody. I know that's a relative thing, and and I certainly don't want to equate my experience with someone who's had a long term toxic relationship or has suffered. It. But in my life, relatively, that that was it was cruel. You know, the way that she like kept changing the you know moving the goalpost and and you know just not caring not seeming to understand how how hard that was so anyway the 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 months unfolded i'm you know having panic attacks my hair is falling out i'm, I'm i don't even have the energy to really fully tell people i i'm just kind of like shriveling up and trying to keep moving forward and i i found my way first to lawyers and and got patronizing unhelpful responses there and the same with the police when I first approached them and finally I made it to the DA's office where I realized that Anna was a subject of an investigation at which point you know that was worst case scenario for me to discover she was a con artist and didn't have any money that we knew of but it was also the first solid piece of information that explained the past hellish few months I had been going through so I actively worked with them in the investigation feeling like I had particular insight having having spent you know the two months with her that I did and the way that she had confided in me with names and and what she was trying to do. In our next and final episode, Anna's wishes for widespread attention are finally granted. It it seemed to me that when she was happy with whatever court look had been picked for her, she really enjoyed the attention. Um, You know, she would look over her shoulder to see how many people were in the room, what the turnout was like. She she seemed very detached from the risk that she might be going to jail. She, when I had to sit in the box and identify her as the defendant, I looked up and she was staring at me and smirking. I mean, she's a narcissist. She's a socio- sociopathic narcissist. And it was on full display. Um, she, she certainly didn't seem remorseful. Illegal Tender is made by Yahoo Finance at our studios in New York City. This episode was written and hosted by me, Katie Krasik. Illegal Tender was created, edited, and produced by Alex Sugg. Thank you to Rachel Deloche-Williams and Emily Balchettis for contributing to this story. Williams' book, My Friend Anna, is available now from Simon & Schuster. Emily is the author of Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World out February 25th. If you enjoyed this podcast, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review it for the show. Until next time, thank you for listening to Illegal Tender.